chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. If you are using your pew Bibles, that's 1,291. So that's James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Those in the back, you probably couldn't see Joe's button. I could. (laughs) Although, how do you not like Ohio State University? Easy? Way to go, Penn State. You know, one of the one of the bad things about having success and, and talking about it a lot over the years, 12 of them, is that eventually that comes to an end. And so you, people come up to you as if I just lost someone dear to me. I'm so sorry to <laughs> hear for your loss. Yeah, I was telling Isaac, uh, uh, it was good for 30 minutes, and then the team showed up. Talking about Alabama. We've been studying together. Here's a a segue. (laughs) We've been studying together, James, for all fall. And we have subtitled this uh, series, The Works of Faith, uh, trying to answer the question, uh, what difference does faith make in life? Specifically, what difference does faith make on Monday morning? That is, it's one thing to come in here where you have all the support and all of the encouragement. You even have the, the language of, of Christians supporting you. Your faith seems to be nurtured, I hope, here at our church. But tomorrow, we're not going to be with you, not, not, not physically. And so what does faith look like there when uh, you have to go to work or you're in your neighborhood or you're seeing some folks come into your home. What's faith like there? And so we've been trying to answer that question together. We, we realize that James is in full agreement with Paul. Uh, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, to the glory of God alone. We, we, we understand that. But James also leans in and says that saving faith is never alone. That is, you're right, you're saved by faith, but it never comes alone. That if there is genuine faith, there are works, there are things that uh, bubble through that, that that have implications for the way in which we live our lives. And and today, 
we're going to focus on what is it work-wise, what produced by faith that helps you deal with one particular season in your life, suffering. Suffering is part of our stories. If you've been alive long enough, you will have gone through a season in which you have suffered. It's part of my story. It's part of so many of your stories, suffering. In fact, our our text tells us, remember Job. And, and you know a jo- story of Job and his wife, two uh, uh, folks who are married to, uh, to one another, go through a season that is horrific that we uh, would never desire for ourselves and even our worst enemies. Uh, together as a couple, they, they not only lose the family business, they, they not only lose their wealth, they not only lose their relationships with their friends, but in a terrorist attack, they lose their children. They lose everything. And, and, and when you study Job, you see that there's radically two different uh, responses to all that suffering. You have Job on the one hand who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yet he seems to have a, 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 a perspective, an understanding that allows him to look at all that horror and it not destroy him. And not destroy his faith. Whereas on the other hand, you have Job's wife and her great quote is, I curse God and want to die. Same circumstances, two very different responses to those circumstances. What James is saying here is that often what is in the heart comes out of the heart, comes flooding out under the pressure moments of our lives, particularly the seasons of suffering. Paul Tripp illustrates this when, when in his book, Dangerous Calling, and I remember we had him here to do a, a marriage conference for us for a number of years ago, and he told that same story then that he wrote later in a book, and if you kind of remember it, you probably could tell it better than I can. He tells the story of how he and his wife were going through a particular season in their marriage where it wasn't going well. Particularly, he seemed to be one person at home and another person at church. He was a pastor at the time. And, and uh, so they had this big fight over why the difference, what's going on. And, and, and so he, under all that pressure and stress, he, he blurted out to her, as many pastors might say, is, hey, but 95% of the women in our church, they wouldn't mind being married to me. And because he was married to a prophet, she didn't mind saying back just as quickly, well, I must be in the other 5%. (laughs) That's a trip's illustration of this principle that whatever's in the heart under pressure comes flooding out. That is, it can be hidden, it can be protected, we can keep it in the lockbox why things are going well, but under specific pressure, particularly suffering and long suffering, what's in there tends to come out. Even Jesus said that out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Sometimes what comes out of there is beautiful and profound. Like Job's quote, Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My Redeemer lives. Beautiful. Profound. 
But James also says something horrible and ugly and hurtful can come out too. James is saying it is possible to have a damaged body and a beautiful soul. But it is also possible to have a beautiful body and an ugly soul. Don't miss that. James is a pastor. He's concerned about his congregation. He's concerned that under the stress of persecution that they're experiencing this season of winter of their lives, this time when, when, when their very lives are being threatened because they're followers of Jesus, that something's going to come out of there. And he's not saying may come out of there. It has come out. The book of James is all about all of these things that have come out under this particular pressure. And he's got one chapter, one last, one last moment to speak to these issues. And so that's what he's doing here in chapter 5. He says, up till now you have blessed God with that same mouth that you've cursed people in the image of God. And that's wrong. He says, there are fights and quarrels among you. There is a a boasting and a grumbling spirit in our church. And even in our text, he says, you're making promises, but under the pressure, you're not keeping them. James is telling us in chapter 5, particularly this text that we're dealing with is how to put to death the root of what's in our hearts. That which is a poison that produces toxic speech and toxic behavior. James has literally given us an antidote to the poison that occupies our hearts. And he gives us two pieces of medicine that must be taken together. The first one is to establish your hearts. You see that in verse 8? He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. How can we establish our hearts? That's a, an interesting way of saying something, isn't it? Establish your hearts. Establish it in what? When I think about that, if you know this, the, the history of Conan O'Brien... He had been on the Late Late Show, not even the Late Show. He was uh, coming on about midnight or one in the morning, and, and nobody was typically up that late. And, but they gave him this promise that, that when, uh, when uh, the anchor of The Tonight Show finally retired and moved on, you have the job. And, and so that day came, and, and, and he was initially given the job of The Tonight Show, but the ratings had had plummeted as they typically do when you change uh, anchors. You, you lose loyalty, but you gain new loyalty. And if you're patient long enough, it kind of comes around. But if you're not patient and they weren't, they fired him. But he had already agreed to give the commencement speech at Dartmouth. And so just a couple of days after he received this horrible news of being fired... He, uh, for, uh, from his dream job that he was waiting at one in the morning for, he said this, please don't be cynical. He had every right to be mad and cynical and disappointed. I hate cynicism. 
It is my least favorite quality and it doesn't lead anywhere. Nobody in life gets exactly what they thought they were going to get. But if you work really hard and you are kind, amazing things will happen. Don't, I'm not trying to promote the end of that statement, just the beginning. Is there something in our hearts that produces cynicism? A critical spirit about us, a grumbling, a, a half-empty glass all the time. James puts it this way in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James is incredibly blunt here. No one, after reading James's letter, thinks, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a beer with him and just find out why he wrote all this. He's not on everybody's list of favorite uh, writers of the New Testament. Martin Luther called this letter the epistle of straw. Uh, nobody is going to want to spend time with James because they, they view James, and we do today, if you listen to people, as kind of a right-wing, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical, uh, a joy killer. Because it just seems one section after another telling us what we're not supposed to do and what we are supposed to do. Like, don't grumble. James' motivation here is not to get them to behave better. James is the pastor of a church that is struggling. They're in the winter of suffering and he wants to recover their heart. He wants to cure the toxins that's causing all the toxic behavior and the toxic words that they have. He's in full agreement with something that Tim Keller said on this passage when he said, the way to hell is pettiness, jealousy, self-pity, harshness, always being unhappy, grumbling is a seed of something terribly poisonous and toxic. We are not to underestimate negative postures and grumbling. You know, some just say, well, he just, he's just always grumbling. He's always negative. That's evidence of something going on in the heart. And somebody whose always glass is half empty can be a, a, a picture of something greater going on in the heart. In fact, it is poison. If you don't get it out, it's going to get you. That's why John Owen, a Puritan preacher, said hundreds of years ago, if, if, if you're not always killing sin, sin is killing you. James on, is on a rescue mission for his congregation. He's on a rescue mission for the grumpy people. And he's viewing his congregation that way. And you might say, he's the pastor, he's, not, he's supposed to be sweet, and, and, and he's supposed to be kind, and he's supposed to be compassionate. This is kind and compassionate. You and I are not supposed to resist the rescue of our friends. Oscar Wilde once wrote that a true friend stabs you in the front. Enemies stab you in the back. It's the way you know the difference. He went on to say that, that they use, friends use a scalpel when they stab you, not a sword. 
Because the goal is not to kill you, but to heal you. James loves them so much that he hates the evil in them. And therefore, you and I are not to avoid the people in our lives that God puts there who love us enough to hate the evil in us. That's establishing our hearts. But we don't just listen to our friends, but we, we listen to the scriptures and, and primarily the scriptures, which is the infallible word of God. And, and what that means is it's without error. And what it teaches and the truths that it teaches are true truth. You can rely on them, that, that God intended for you to, to know them, to believe them, to understand them, to obey them, because it is good for us. This is why James will say twice in our short passage, consider you have heard it said. And then he'll say, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. What's he doing? James is recounting stories that he assumes they already know, that That is, he's not recounting these stories. He's just giving you the shorthand. Remember the story of Job. Remember the prophets. Because he knows they already know these stories. And he's bringing them into his argument about looking at their heart. They are the antidote for the toxins of the heart. We are the people of the book which implies we read it, which implies we try to understand it, which implies we believe it, which implies we obey it. You know, if you're unmarried and you desire someday to be married, what kind of person should you marry? in light of this passage. Never sacrifice character for beauty. Looking good in a pair of Levi's is a distant second to somebody with a humble heart and a well-worn Bible. If you have to choose between a beautiful soul and a beautiful body, choose the beautiful soul every time. But where do we go? Where, where, where can we learn to read and understand and believe and apply the scriptures? Last year, we created a way to break this big congregation down. Because though you're listening to the word here, and I'm trying to help us all understand it and apply it, we need a context where we can go deeper, ask questions, wrestle and struggle to, to, to doubt and, and uh, to uh, be skeptical about what's being taught in a safe environment where we can wear that for a while and then own it. Where is that in a church of this size? And it's not like you're the only people who come here. There are two more services. There was one before it and there's one after it. So there's a whole bunch of other people who aren't in here with you that call EP home. We broke this down into small groups that we call Renew. If you're not in a Renew group, you need a context to wrestle with these things, to wrestle with fellow believers and some skeptics in the group who will will challenge you on your faith. 
so that it is yours and not just something that someone you like said. You need context, and, and, and where that is in EP is, is through our Renew groups, our small groups. And so I encourage you, if you're not in one, get in one. The, there's no start time and end time. You can, you can look up uh, uh, those that are leading our Renew groups. You can go online on the app, or you can ask Cheryl Mullis, and, and she will tell you all the groups. We have one almost every day morning, noon, and night. There's no reason we're not in them. We need them because we need to process the scriptures because we need to establish our hearts in the scriptures. I was thinking of a metaphor for that. It's our small groups are a lot like going to the hospital after you have, have drank poison. And what do they want to do? They want to pump your stomach. In a lot of ways, the engaging of the scriptures like that stomach pump is pulling all the toxins out so that good can remain. But that's not all James says. He says one piece of medicine is you establish your heart. You establish your heart by listening to your friends who love you enough to hate the evil in you. You also establish your heart by listening to the scriptures and interacting with them, believing them and obeying them. But the second piece of a medicine that James gives us in our text is have the long view. That's what he means by patience. In verse 7, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. Most of a farmer's life is waiting. You're either waiting for a time to plant the seed or you're waiting from that time to the time that it starts to grow or, 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 and then you care for it then, but you, then you have to wait for harvest and, and after harvest, you have to wait all through winter before you can plant again. That's the farmer's life. And, And James is saying, not everybody here is farmers. Even though he was writing into an agrarian society, it's still apropos for us today. We can think about what it, what it must be like for those whose entire life cycle is around the seasons of a, a spring for, uh, for planting and, and a summer for caring and, and harvest in the fall and then a, a winter again. And for, for uh, some of you, you're in that uh, period of planting seeds. And that's really what we were doing with Caroline. We're in the spring with her. And we're planting the seeds of the gospel through this picture so that our parents and so that the teachers and so the friends of the parents and and grandparents and aunts and uncles can all remind her of the seed that is implanted so they can care for it all summer long so that we might see a harvest of, of faith. But whether there's a harvest or not, winter's coming. And for some of you, you're in that, that wintertime, and, and wintertime is a time, we're about to be in it. I, I, it. It's the hardest time on me. Not, not, not so much mentally as it is just, I don't like the cold. There's nothing I like about it. It's gray. We hardly see the sun. It, it, snow comes, and it can't go anywhere. And I like 70 degrees. But for those that are suffering, winter is the season of their lives. And for some, it is incredibly long 
for them to the point where they're not thinking spring is ever going to make it. But it is only a season. Spring is a coming. James is saying, be patient, for the resurrection is a coming. That even if you're going through the harshest of winters of your lives, in the end, there will be a spring. The resurrection is the proof of that. In When Breath Becomes Air, which is Paul uh, Calanthe's book, he's a neurosurgeon, he's, he's dead now, but when he wrote the book, it was about him dying. You see, when he was young, he always wanted to be a doctor and Specifically, as he grew older, he wanted to be a surgeon. And, and so he goes to Stanford and, and graduates from medical school and, and top of his class. And, and he does a residency in, in uh, a neurosurgery. And, 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 and then he, he gets his first job. And while he's on his first job, he gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And all of his friends are saying to him, the reason we know this is because he wrote this autobiography, When Breath is Like Air. And he said, uh, my, all my friends said to me, the epitaph or, or, the, or the description of my life is all, all preparation and no fulfillment. And so he wrote his book because he wanted to write against that theme. He didn't want that to be his epitaph. He didn't want that to be the description of his entirety of his life because he knew as a Christian, his life was bigger than that moment. He knew that his life would not be defined by that moment. And so he writes a book and he says, cancer and death will not define my story. And so he gets married, starts his work. They even have a child together. And it's all recorded in the book that, that I'm living for eternity, not for the 70 or, in his case, 30-something years. If the resurrection is true, then there is no such thing as terminal cancer. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is the best thing that can happen to a Christian. Because the moment you die, you are ushered into a better reality. A more fulfilling, a a better place with a better king. This does not deny the middle stories that feel like death to us. Winter is a real season. But the eternal spring is a coming. The fact that death is unsettling, there's no other way to live. The mortality rate on this planet has not changed since its beginning. It's still 100%. I am a dying preacher preaching to dying people. The question is not how to avoid death, but how to live well in the face of what is coming. That's why James says, look at the prophets. Look at their lives. Look how they lived. They're the examples for us. You know Isaiah? What a great story of a guy who's called to the ministry. God gives him a job offer. Hey, Isaiah, I want you you to be my mouthpiece to my people. 
I want you to go and, and, and tell them I'm their God. I want you to tell them I've got a plan for them. I want you to tell them that I'm going to bless them. But they're not going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to reject you. And they're not just going to reject you the way we get rejected, where you get tossed out of a club or, or you're not part of the in-group anymore. You're not invited to all the special meals. They're going to saw you in two. When you know that and you know what, what Isaiah says back to God when he says, whom shall I send, who will go for us? That if he knew what was coming, it is amazing. He said, here am I, send me. How did the prophets get that kind of perspective? They knew that death was not the end of them. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for and being certain of, the, of things we do not see with our eyes. They knew the promises. They knew that what, what God was going to bring spring, but they lived in winter. I love the end of, uh, of Hebrews 11. Listen, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They lived in winter their whole lives. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Job agrees with them. He agrees with Hebrews. Because he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I will stand with him on that day, though my flesh be destroyed. With my eyes, I will see the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? He's seeing the definition of faith. It's being certain of things hoped for. And, and, and there's this uh, confidence that he has in the things that are coming in, in the promise. He can't see it, but he's assured. And that's enough for Job. Is that enough for us? And those of you who are facing the winters of your lives, is it enough for you to know that spring is coming? That's what the prophets teach us. You have seen, verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And therefore, there's, there's no wasted circumstance, including your suffering. And therefore, you can chase after life with all of the passion that God can give you. Don't quit on life because it's hard, because you're in the winter, because spring is coming. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. Handel's Messiah is based on Isaiah, the guy who said, here am I, ascend me, and he gets sawed in two. What's he doing? He's, he's looking to the last chapter of the story. You're in the middle chapters now. But there is a last chapter. This is what Pascal says. He says, even the greatness of man is evident by his wretchedness. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? We come from paradise. 
That's why we, we desire to last. We want to make a difference. We want significance and purpose because that's why we were created and that's what we were created for. But it is also true that paradise is restored through the dismantling of a king. Do you know that's amazing in history to find a king who dies for the people rather than the people who die for the king? Remember the story. You are not at the end, even if you are at the end of your life on earth. You're not at the end of the story. Jesus is the one who felt the winter on the cross. He lost everything through his suffering. He was the king who fell off his throne. He became the prophet who was sown sown in two. He was the beautiful soul whose body was made ugly. Why? Here's the punchline. To make us his people and to give us a new life and a spring that is coming. This is what flushes the toxins out of our hearts. To remember the king. To remember the whole story. To remember that this is not all that there is. That the worst thing that can happen to me this morning is the best thing that can happen to me this morning. That when the doctor sits with you and he's across from you and he's having a difficult time to tell you that you have terminal cancer, it's the best thing that he can say. Because you are going to go from here to there where cancer cannot go. Those of you who have been in traffic accidents and your parts don't work anymore, when you go into heaven and when that new spring comes, you will be better than new. When all is made new and all of your losses are made up for, we call that spring. That's what we long for. And we have to see it right now with our eyes of faith because we can't see it with, with the physical yet. In fact, all the evidence is to the contrary. All the evidence is that this world is, is going away, that is destroying, that is falling apart. And everything about our lives and everything about the lives of the people we know, everything we know about our culture, everything we, we can see physically about our, our, our world is all falling apart. But with our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, we can see a king who's coming back to make all things new. And to make it better than it once was. It's not just that paradise will be restored. It'll be better than paradise. And we're the only ones on the planet who can see it. And that is what gets rid of the toxins that cause us to grumble and quarrel and fight. And to use the same mouth to praise God on Sunday morning and then curse God's people on Monday morning. Do you see? That's what our job is, is to help you see so that it can be different. So that the end of your life is not the sentence that a doctor can give you or a a thief or a terrorist or some gang member. The only, the only 
validation, the only sentence that matters is the one who said, like we said to Caroline just moments ago, you are mine and I will get you home. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I pray for thanksgiving that we are thankful for the gift of our King who came into our world and didn't just ask us to die for him, but he died for us. And to prove that a resurrection is coming, to prove to us that spring in the midst of the winter that he experienced and that many of us experience here is only a season. He rose from the dead. Our Redeemer lives and reigns and is coming back to make all things new. We pray, Father, that we live full lives with the pedal all the way down, with as much passion as you can give us to live life to the fullest, an abundant life without grumbling, without cynicism, without the glass half full. May you take the toxins out of our heart and replace it with the gospel of grace that we might grow. In Jesus' name, amen.